Hello and welcome back to the History Machine Podcast, part two of Greece, uh, where last time we left off, the Persians gave the Greeks a hard time, but the Greeks came back. And uh, the two major superpowers that were left over, Athens and Sparta, are left to their own demise. So Athens, after building its magnificent navy, finds itself in a really interesting position where its political objective is to be incredibly anti-Persian, while the Spartans have a similar political objective. Their strength is that they control pretty much infantry-based battle. So naturally, you got two major superpowers, and Athens, being the sly dog they are, they gradually uh, form a new league, and it is the Delian League, named after an island called Delos. They unite under it and say, listen, hey, we're all cool, we're all democratic, we're all fun. And slowly they turn that league into an Athenian-esque empire. And meanwhile, the Spartans are freaking right out, and they form a Peloponnesian League, grouped with... Uh, Corinth and a couple of other city-states and the Peloponnese Islands. And with that, they're like, we're going to be the major land power. So you got the left and you got the right. You got the hot and the cold, and they are ready to go at each other's throats for total dominance of Greece. Yeah, so as I said, like, following on from the Greco-Persian Wars, mm. they weren't going to stick together. They were too old of, of enemies, really, for Sparta and Athens to oh, really yeah. stay on the same side. But they did agree, for the time being, let's just... Get rid of the remnants of Persia. We won't go after one another. We'll just go after them. Exactly. Yeah. It's like we've got to clear these foreigners out right here. Sounds like a pretty bad political stance. <laughs> Get these bloody foreigners out of here. They're they're not helping at all. <laughs> so, so I said, yeah, anyway, uh, Sparta with the land yeah. and Athens with the naval force. Athens with the Delian League. With fun fact, as you said, island of Delos is where it comes from. That's where they kept their treasury. So all the money got sent there, which was, you know, initially the whole idea was like, well, we're part of a league and then we'll, you know, divide it up between us. But gradually it became the thing where it wasn't really an alliance so much as now these were all vassals of Athens and they had to do what it's saying. It's like, don't worry, we're going to keep all this money in a big pile that only we have access to. Don't worry, if you need some money, we'll give it to you, but we kind of won't. So I suppose this whole period of ramping tensions, I suppose we're going to get into our first general here, Simon. Or sometimes pronounced Kaiman as well. You know, it's a tomato-tomato scenario. We're pretty much going to interchange it a little bit. But thankfully, even after the little bit of a messy earlier stage where we're talking much more about battles and a lot less about commanders, the Peloponnesian Wars are very much in-depth and we've got a lot of standout names, people who do make names for themselves, people who do have great anecdotes and stories and they're quite the characters. We really can go further in-depth with them with the history machine. So back to you, Cahill, on Kaiman. Yeah, so I think, uh, Simon, we'll keep switching it up just to keep it confusing. Um, <laughs> he, I, I, I want to bring up, like, you know, we, this episode, I think we want to focus on the Peloponnesian Wars, but I think Simon's important to bring up, even though he kind of, he was in between mm. the Persian and the Peloponnesian Wars. It's important yes. to bring up because I think he summarizes this whole period, just the changing landscape. So Simon, he was son of Miltades, who was in the Battle of Marathon, fought in Salamis and made general afterwards and he was mostly involved in basically taking out the remaining areas of persia that are still deployed in greece his main battle that he's famous for was a uh, battle of eurymedon basically persia were planning a big counteroffensive to kind of have another go really before they even got going simon just went in there took them out just kind of stopped them in their tracks 
Funnily enough, this one, it is his really, really big one. History Machine doesn't consider it that impressive. His overall wins over expectation do not go up much by this. It really thought that it was kind of his to lose. It, it gave him, you know, roughly a 90% chance to win, which seems huge. It probably is over overestimating it, but uh, yeah, he did deal out more casualties than expected. He dealt out about okay. 30% more, so still impressed result. So once again, the hoplites are kind of hot knifing through butter through the Persians. Simon then politically, he was kind of an adult. He, he did seem a bit more of a relic of the previous era. You know, they were happy to be united under Persia. Athenians were fighting with Spartans and there was no talk of this democracy nonsense. Very black and white. It kind of became his undoing. Simon, solid general, five battles in the dad base. Okay. He had a couple of losses. The history machine only considers him a little bit above average overall. Very good at dealing out casualties, though, as I said, about okay. on average, about 30% more than expected. You know, certainly a very big name, very important to the Athenians, but they felt he was a bit too soft on the Spartans. He was quite happy to stay at peace with them and just focus on the Persians. A little bit of a Spartan sympathizer, was he? A little bit. And uh, basically, as soon as possible, the Athenians and Pericles big founder yes. of Athenian democracy and so on. As soon as possible, they basically exiled him, basically getting too close with the Spartans. Let's take a vote, lads. Get Kaiman right out of here. Sorry, Kaiman, you have been voted out. That is democracy. I don't make up the rules, except when I do. <laughs> so yeah, it's really, in, in summary, you see this. Athens, they're moving away from Sparta. They're forming their own empire. They are replacing Persia with themselves now. They're building up a big war chest and they're moving towards a navy and away from land battles as much as possible. Yeah, I think it's really important to mention here, and this is something that really ticks off the Spartans, because the Spartans are like, we control the land battles. That is our one counter to the Athenians having such a strong navy. Athens decides to build a big wall all the way around the city and connect it straight up to another port city. And it means that they have direct connection to the sea, nobody is going to affect be able to invade them because they've got this fantastic wall and then they'll be able to use their superior navy to restock them if they're ever under siege. And the Spartans are furious at this. So what the Athenians do is the Spartans demand that you should stop building this wall and the Athenians, in a really shrewd way, send somebody to say, listen, we're not building a wall. And they weren't lying because yeah. the wall <laughs> is finished. And that really pissed off the Spartans. They basically took the route better to ask forgiveness than ask permission. Yeah. <laughs> very, very much so. So that is, a, there's definitely a couple of catalysts and fires for what triggers the Peloponnesian War. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important as well to highlight at this point, Peloponnesian War, it was really lots of wars with pieces in between. Sometimes it wasn't even full-blown. It was more just a skirmish or kind of proxy wars between different colonies but it's it, the whole thing, I suppose, just refers to Athens versus Sparta in this kind of period in the 400s uh, BC. So we chatted a bit about uh, Cayman or Simon, whichever way you want to pronounce it. And he turns out to be kind of a fairly good guy. Stands out, you know, important, definitely politically. So kind of like some of our earlier characters, they can be much more important as a politician or as an all round kind of polymorph of a person. They're really good at a lot of different things. And because they're so important and politically inclined, they happen to get themselves in situations of a lot of power. Now, we did mention Pericles as well. He's the political rival of Cayman, the guy, let's say, who decides, let's build a wall. Uh, historically, most people blame him for the antics that will cause this Peloponnesian War. It's like, listen, you were poking Sparta with a stick. You were getting away with a lot of shenanigans. And eventually the whole thing was just going to erupt yeah, as well as, as Athens became bigger power, like Corinth was another big naval power who were allied with Sparta. 
they got increasingly annoyed. One of their colonies, Orchira, rebelled, gained independence, and Athens basically was like, no taking backsies. They stopped Corinth from taking back. So the Battle of Sabota really actually got the ball rolling. A funny side note we can really talk about here, city-state of Corinth is where the Corinthians are obviously from, and that's where you get a Corinthian helmet. So when you think of the Greek helmet, this real cool stylized helmet, maybe with or without the horse mane, but it has the narrow eyes, it covers the head, it's got that really unique shape. It's the Corinthians that made that helmet, and pretty much other city-states around them adopted it. They're like, this thing is amazing. We're going to take it. And Corinth is conveniently located in between Sparta and Athens. Their power base was, we're the navy guys. And suddenly Athens has a navy that outnumbers them now three to one. They're like, okay, we've lost our whole niche here. (laughs) We used to be the guys that could do this. Now we can't. And it's like, we feel very intimidated about this. So tensions were mounting. Athens' navy was getting bigger and bigger. One of Sparta's real key allies, Corinth, was not happy about this. Corinth was basically the Peloponnesian League's navy. Corinth were another big naval power like Athens. They were not happy to see Athens keep getting bigger. They were fighting a lot for territory. In uh, 433 BC, one of Corinth's colonies, Corcyra, decided that they wanted to have independence. So they had a rebellion. That went well for them. They kind of got that. And then Athens decided, Corinth, you're not allowed to have that back. If you attack them again, we're going to defend them. In this, you had the Battle of Sabota, which was um, kind of in, indecisive for both. It was kind of a draw, but, you know, the, the Corinthians didn't really get it back. So I think strategically, I went for Athens. Heavier casualties maybe than they would like on either side. But this is where you started to get, okay, it's no longer tensions. They are now fighting. It was kind of hidden as a proxy war initially because it was over that colony. And like, oh, well, it's it's for independence, but... So effectively, this is our Cold War has now become a red-hot one. At this point, anyway, we enter, as we mentioned, it's Navy versus Land Force, and we enter a serious war of attrition. Sparta basically went into the Athenian countryside and were able to siege the city, but as we mentioned, Athens had cleverly built those walls and built it around the nearest port as well, at Piraeus. They were still able to keep their navy going, so what you had was Spartans sieging Athens, but then Athens blockading Sparta kind of asymmetrical but both of them just told you know holding the other at bay neither really able to do much damage neither could really do anything about it then what happened was a plague hit athens and because the spartans were roaming the countryside you had this massive dense population all behind the city walls now people who'd moved from the country into the city to escape the war and the plague spread like crazy and the Athenian leader Pericles who we mentioned uh, died in this as did his sons actually funny fact all of his sons died except one of his illegitimate sons and the city of Athens decided let's recognise him and make him a citizen because we need at least one son of Pericles to be around it put Athens very much on the back foot they no longer had this strong leader who they were all happy to turn to in times of crisis It, it really made them struggle and funnily enough Sparta wasn't hit by the same plague because they were blockaded. They were isolated from the wider world due to the Athenian blockade. (laughs) Well, we've no access to this plague because we've no access to anybody. So anyway, uh, Athens now knew the war of attrition was not going to work for them. They had to speed things up. And here we're going to bring in our second general, Cleon. He was an Athenian general. He was eager to keep war going. He wanted to hit a knockout blow against Sparta. In retrospect, propaganda later on from po- other politicians in Athens, not kind to this man. And the history machine totally agrees, thinks he was totally mediocre. 
Um, good casualties dealt over expectation. You know, 40%. He had, he had two battles, one win on, on record. His wins over expectation was 0.07, slightly under that. So, like, just totally average, mediocre, nothing significant. And I think it's worth pointing out the main battle he's remembered for is the Battle of Amphipolis. And this was messy as hell. This one, another kind of inconclusive battle, but both he and the opposing general died. Brasidas, who was kind of, he was basically the Spartan counterpoint. He was another general who was very eager to like try and like end this war of attrition, knock the other side out, let's really hit them hard. Both Cleon and Brasidas died in this war. Cleon, if nothing else, he was kind of a clear voice with a clear goal in mind. As we said, with Pericles gone, there wasn't as clear mm -hmm. a direction for Athens. And following his death, both Athens and Sparta kind of looked around and went like, are you still pushed to keep going with this? Yeah, how about we roll it back a little bit, go on a little bit of a peacetime? And this led to the peace of Nikias, which led to our first kind of main gap in the Peloponnesian Wars, where they just kind of decided to regroup for a while, uh, still hated one another, but just no official fighting for the next few years. Yeah, so if, if we can thank Cleon for anything, it's very much the whole idea that his death enabled a long, well, a peace for a certain amount of time. So I suppose we've talked a bit about the Athenians and their democracy and how they work. And really, when you read about them and when you're taught about them in school, the Athenians come across as like, these guys, they're the founders of democracy. They're the enlighteners. They're the people who bring politics and philosophy and mathematics. And they're the real shapers of, of Western society. But there is a story that is told by an Athenian about Athens and about pretty much how they dealt with the political situation. Now, this person's name is Thucydides. He is pretty much the guy responsible for the introduction of realpolitik. Now, realpolitik is this kind of concept that there is really no ideologies. Everything is a charade. It's all about power, grabbing power and maintaining and holding power. So what effectively happens is there is a small island that remains neutral during the Peloponnese War and the Athenians decide that, you know, these guys might possibly join with the Spartans because they've got a bit of a connection to them. And this is the island of Melos. So there is recorded by Thucydides this particular debate, the major bullet points of what happens when the Athenians do go and meet the Melians and decide, like, how are we going to work this thing out? So kind of in summary, I'm going to pretend to be Athens and I'll let Cahill pretend to be millions. We'll cut through like the main points to really explain what Athenian democracy at this time was all about. So the Athenians land up, they're in the island, they send over a couple of negotiators. They're going to say, listen, I'm going to offer you an ultimatum. Surrender, pay tribute to Athens or you're going to be destroyed. We don't want to waste any time arguing because the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. We're a neutral city, not an enemy, so Athens has no need to conquer us. Now listen, hold on a second. If we actually accept neutrality, we're going to look a little bit weak, and that's not something the Athenians can afford. Yeah, but an invasion like this will alarm the other neutral Greeks. They will become hostile to Athens out of fear. Look, I'm going to put it this way, right? The other Greek states on the mainland, they're not going to behave in the way you're behaving right now. Yeah, but it'd be cowardly of us to just give up without any fight. Now look, it's only shameful for you to give up when you actually have a chance of winning, and you do not have a chance. Yeah, you know, Athenians are far stronger, but there's a slim chance that we could win, so, you know, we'll regret not trying their luck. Look, you're really emotional right now, you're very short-sighted, and if you lose, which is really likely, 
you're going to live to regret this optimism. But the gods are on our side because we're morally right. Gods don't really fight in battles. That's not going to help you right now. And it is really the natural order for the strong to beat the weak. Yeah, but, you know, the Spartans will come to our defense. Now, listen, hold on. The Spartans are a very practical people. They're never going to put themselves at risk for this tiny island. It would be incredibly risky for them to try and rescue you because we have a better navy. you got to get very real here. There's going to be no shame in surrendering to the stronger opponent. And our terms are really reasonable. No, we're out. We'll take our chances. And the Athenians proceeded to kill them all and enslave everybody who was left. So that's pretty much how Athenian democracy worked at the time and was very heavily critiqued. So when you do remember the Athenians as these great bringers of intellectual ideas, when they needed to behave this kind of way, they did. Yeah, even though they're they're highlighted as like the great kind of um, bringers of democracy and so on and the, the ideals of democracy, really they kind of function how a lot of the actual cynical, horrible democracy happens where it's just like, no, we're, go- we're going to invade if you don't go along with the... Uh, with the plan, yeah, yeah. We have no issue liberating your country, let's say. <laughs> well, you might say like, listen, these guys brought us Socrates, but you got to remember, they also killed him. Not that summary. And also, the, of course, the main point, which we can't ignore, of, you know, it was democracy, but not if, you, not if you're poor or a woman or a slave, which they also had. Yeah, yeah there you go probably gave them the economy they needed so that they could have all their time philosophizing. So, yeah. So I think that's a very little interesting side note that we've kind of went on just to explain a little bit about the Athenian democracy and where it's coming from and really shed a bit of light on something that's usually ignored. So I suppose with all of that put aside, we are going to talk a little bit about the Sicilian expedition. This was a bad idea to go invade Sicily. So yeah, in the piece of Nicias, you had, uh, or Nicias, you had both sides basically... Decided to take a break, but kind of knowing that they were going to go back to fighting sooner or later. And both sides thought that they would kind of look for ways in the meantime that they wouldn't have to go through a war of attrition next time. They Trying to find ways that they would get the resources they needed to really mm. take the other side out. Athens looked around, okay. and they thought, what if we had Sicily? That has lots of stuff there. You know, we, we can argue we, we have this kind of minor ally. We haven't been in touch with them for a while, but they've been pushed out by the Syracusans, which our allies with Sparta, we can launch a proxy war there, take it over, and then once we have all that, we'll definitely have what it takes to take out Sparta. We'll have all the resources we need. So I suppose on to Sicily. Let's uh, crash in against uh, Syracuse and deal with a couple of possible Carthaginians out there, and let's see what happens. The Sicilian expedition by Athens to go invade Sicily, I would kind of summarize it as like, you're playing a grand strategy game, like Total War or something, and you kind of, you have a vague goal in mind, and you, you think about how you're going to do it, and then out of nowhere you get this pop-up going like, oh, hey, bonus resources if you take this particular province. I mean, like, I know it's out of the way, but that's a nice-looking bonus. So, you know, if I mess this up, I'm probably gone, but hey, if I get it, this will probably, like, be nice easy from here on. Let's, let's, let's gamble. Yeah, it, we're like, you know what, we've been at the gambling table for quite a long time. Uh, we're actually too far in the hole now, so the only logical thing to do is to keep gambling. <laughs> yeah, if you can't tell from our tones, this expedition was a very bad idea. You know, sometimes it's interesting to see where the history machine diverges in its opinion from how it's recorded, but this one really sticks with the narrative. The history machine had casualties about 85% higher than expected. They, their invasion force was wiped out. Wow. Spartans and Syracusans took about 5% less than expected. And also, like, the Spartans, 0.24 wins over expectation. So basically, like, they weren't massive, massive favorites, but it was pretty sure, like, three times out of four, Spartans <laughs> were going to win this. 
Athens should not have attacked. Oh, wow. Really, it comes down to the invading force had hardly any cavalry okay. and lightly armoured infantry. Athens had been putting everything into its uh, navy for years and it had really fallen behind at this stage in terms mm-hmm. of solid infantry. And, yeah. like, they were fighting this battle on land. This wasn't like a blockade, wear them out. This was like, let's go in there and attack on land. And it just did not work at all for them. My God. So I suppose that that whole thing completely backfired. And uh, do we know the general who was in charge of that particular battle? Well, this is kind of one of the issues with it was that they had uh, they had three kind of main generals on the expedition: Nigas, Alcibiades, Lamachus. So you had some very different ideas, and Eurymedon as well was also there. Um, he had very different ideas on how to go about doing this. There was just a lot of confusion. Yeah, the whole thing as well ended with two of the generals dying in the process and the other two basically being taken prisoner. So yeah, it was really the Athenian force. They either died or they got mm. sold into slavery following this war. Not only did they lose ships, they just lost a huge amount of manpower in this. They were just seriously softened up by this whole thing, massively weakened. And, you know, as we mentioned, we're talking about city-states, you know, with colonies. Population is hard to replace. They are not huge areas. So, like, you cannot afford to lose thousands of people on this kind of stupid expedition. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, so really, this whole thing, it set Sparta up for a counterattack, knowing that now, because basically Athens had been so silly, Sparta finally had the capability mm-hmm. to take them out. Now is a good time to bring in Lysander. Ah, uh, yes, Lysander. I suppose to bring him in, he is the Spartan commander who will effectively end the Peloponnesian War. He's the guy who's going to sign off and win it. So in the end, the Spartans do win it with the combination of the plague, the Athenians deciding let's try and take Sicily in the middle of this, and that completely did not work. So Lysander, great Spartan commander and admiral, the big thing he will do, particularly in the Peloponnesian War, is he's going to actually command a fleet. Now you're going to say, hold on, back up. The Spartans, they don't even have a fleet, or if they have a fleet, it's tiny. Just to convey, this is how Sparta did their naval battles. This is Athens softened up post-Sicily invasion. We had Mindarus on the Spartan side. He has the record of all Greek generals for the most battles without a single win. He had three battles in our database. He won none of them. On average, he had minus 0.7 wins above expectation. So basically... Average battle, 70% chance he was going to win it. He lost all of them. He took almost 50% more casualties than he should have. Dealt out fewer casualties than he should have. His final battle, at the Battle of Cyzicus, he lost his whole fleet and his own life. And uh, the classic laconic dispatch from this battle was simply, the ships are lost, Mindaris is dead, the men are starving, we wonder what is to be done. So this is this is the state of the Spartan fleet prior to Lysander yeah. coming in. So Lysander, who pretty much has to come in as this like super consultant to clean up a company that is bleeding money and it's hemorrhaging and it's it's dying. They're like, okay, let's see what I gotta do. I gotta pick up these pieces and try and build something. So yeah, he is a Spartan commander and an admiral who ends up commanding the Spartan fleets. And as you might say, well, the Spartans don't really have a fleet. Turns out they turn to the Persians, they're, you know, buddies who aren't really their buddies. <laughs> and the Persians kind of say, well, Athens are really a big problem right now. And we're afraid that they're going to be the next Persia because they've got a great navy. They've got a lot of resources and they're really ambitious right now. So what we'll do is we'll just give you a load of gold and give you ships, buy you ships, do what you want. Just stop this Athenian nonsense. And they do. 
Okay, so we'll start with the Battle of Nuttium, and that is where Lysander is appointed like the Spartan admiral. He gains friendship with Cyrus the Younger, who is the current leader of Persia at the time. So the whole idea is like, let's build this really strong Spartan fleet, and we're going to take on the Athenians, we're going to beat them at their own game. It's, it feels almost cliched, it's like, let's attack them where they're at their strongest by becoming better at what they are. Like, cue Spartan training montage here. So I suppose what, what happens is uh, the Spartans then decide they're going to lure out the Athenians for a battle. While they're sneaking away some supplies, the Athenians are placed under the command of Antiochus and his helmsman. And during this time then, Lysander manages effectively to engage the Athenian fleet and he routes them. And he does this with help of other Persian ships and fleets who are actually under command by Cyrus. So it feels really strange that only a couple of decades ago, they would have been absolutely at the throats of the Persians but it is a case of the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. Yeah, this one was a very big breakthrough for Sparta because this finally showed they could actually Mm -hmm. win with the navy. Now, the history machine has it it has it even. They start off with a very similar number of ships but the real difference is Sparta dealt out about 20% more casualties than expected. They themselves took practically no casualties. So after you had the previous thing with the with Mindaris just, like, just losing everything, just disastrous, you know, no ability to keep his own men alive or himself alive. They didn't crush the Athenian fleet here, they didn't take out all of it, but they took almost no losses themselves in the process of defeating them. A very, very big improvement here from Lysander. Definitely big upset for the Athenians. They're not used to this at all, because it is, they put all their eggs in one basket. They have kind of said, we're going to have the best navy ever, and this is how we're going to dominate the Mediterranean. Or at least the eastern side of it. So I suppose what happens to Lysander is he is eventually out of office and he's replaced by Cal E. Kratidas. He tries to continue the war at sea in the Battle of Arginusae. And this is near the island of Labo. There's a blockade and the Spartans are pretty much broken and they are then soundly defeated. And the general, Cal E. Kratidas, is killed during this battle. Now I think we're just going to apologise a little bit for the mispronunciations, but Greek names are ridiculous ridiculous to try and pronounce at times and they unfortunately have counter pronunciations where they like as we mentioned earlier the simon kaiman thing it's like both are correct so it's really messy at times trying to pronounce them i know a greek person and they just told us that all other europeans have no idea how consonants are supposed to work so that's that's my summary (laughs) so after this uh after that battle then lysander is brought back to command they're like okay listen we really need to reappoint you you are particularly good you've done something that the spartans aren't really good at you are like not necessarily our one-trick pony but you're the exception to the rule here we don't actually have good naval commanders so we're going to need you to take back over so he was like okay this is what i'm going to do going to join another spartan fleet again cyrus is going to be involved people are going to be happy we're going to take out the athenians once and for all and they do this brought us to the Battle of Aegospotami, probably mispronouncing again, but uh, again, another 50-50 naval battle. This time, Lysander, he does his thing, deals out a whopping 85% more casualties than expected, according to the history machine in this one. Wow. Takes very few himself, and this, we've been talking all along, both sides kind of sick of war of attrition, want to knock out blow. This is Sparta finally knocking Athens out of the war. After all their time being superior on land, Sparta finally learned how to command a navy. And once Athens' fleet is knocked out, which it pretty much was, it was you know almost wiped out in this battle. Once that's yep. gone, Athens can't do anything else. Like their communications are gone, their trade is gone, their money's gone. 
Um, Their supplies are gone, everything. Yeah, Athens wiped out by this war. They surrender shortly after. And this is the end of the Peloponnesian War, essentially. So Lysander, so if he had stopped here, history machine would have ranked him very highly. On average, dealing out about 50% more casualties than expected. Killing, like his commander kills over expectation is about 0.5. So basically like every battle, there's a coin flip chance that he's going to kill the enemy commander, which is insane. That's, that, yeah, that's like, that's unheard of. And overall wins over expectation, yeah. um, about 30%, you know, very, mm. very good, very strong general. However, this was almost undone by his final battle in which he died. Following the Battle of Aegospotami, uh, Sparta won. They were able to conquer Athens. They were able to put in their own dictators, their own oligarchy, the 30 tyrants. And it looked like Sparta all poised to become the new big empire, become the big Greek empire. But they just couldn't really hold it. They couldn't hold on. There is a couple of things to remember. Sparta, if you know a little bit about them, they do have a very rigid system in which only a certain small percentage of their population are soldiers. But they are professional soldiers and they're good soldiers. The rest are slaves and they're considered foreign slaves known as the helots. And the Spartans, historically, are incredibly fearful of a slave uprising. For example, there was a Spartan law where if you had some slaves working your land and a slave was particularly strong, you could be fined for not killing him because they were so terrified that a strong slave could be a pretty good soldier. And if he could be a pretty good soldier, then he could be a pretty good rebel. So they were just petrified all the time of slave revolts because they simply had so many slaves and they were outnumbered about 10 to 1 with the helot slaves that they kept. And this is something that... that um really got to go a little bit in depth to explain a lot of their policies and why they possibly didn't act or why they didn't really venture too far from Sparta. They kind of had a sweet deal. They had people work on the land. They didn't have to do it themselves. They had time to either exercise or whatever kind of pastimes or hobbies they wanted to get into. They could do that because they were not doing the manual labor themselves. They were just training and they were oppressing and beating slaves. This is what they were doing because they had such a rigid terrible system when you think about it like it it might be okay if you're a spartan in that society or if you're another freeman but if you are one of the many many slaves you're living in a hellish existence so the spartans would not spend much time outside of their territory dealing with foreign wars things like this the peloponnesian war that's really why this is a bit of an exception because they do fight their neighbors when they need to they rarely use their army unless they absolutely have to because they're so afraid of an internal rebellion happening and I think that's something very important just to mention about like their society and how they function and what they do. And after the Peloponnesian War, they lose so much manpower that they can't really quite govern this new empire they're going to be taking over. They're in a really bad situation. They're like, okay, sure, we beat Athens. Athens are no longer the big threat. We took the cities. We did what we needed to do. We're now the dominant force in Greece. And they do experience total dominance in Greece. But just very short-lived, though. Very short-lived. And they do install 30 tyrants and replace democracy in Athens. And I think that very much nicely leads to our next commander, who is the bringer of democracy, the person who will return it. Really, like when you think of countries talking about, we're bringing a democracy to the area. This guy is literally doing that. And he is Therasybulus. So, Therasybulus... He is the Greek general, actually, with the most battles in our database. He had six battles. Um, considering nice. the average is like yeah. one, one and a half battles, like he, he did a lot. He was active throughout the Peloponnesian Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We mentioned earlier the Mindaris, who did a terrible job. Ursilbus uh, was the one to lead the army that killed him. He was active throughout on the Athenian side. Most of the Peloponnesian War. Athens being mm-hmm. taken over. He was the one who basically led the resistance force and helped take it back. With this, they would effectively siege Athens, get these 30 tyrants, throw them right out, re-establish democracy in Athens and make Athens a place that was now again its own city-state that wasn't really crippled under Spartan rule anymore. Overall, Thrasylbus, like very, very important historically, good reputation. History Machine supports it. Despite having one loss, which often can really hurt the score overall, despite having loss, he still had 0.3 wins over expectation on average, dealt out about 20% more casualties than expected, about 20% more... uh, enemy commander kills than expected very very solid all around and just proved himself in multiple situations both in the Peloponnesian War and afterwards trying to oust the 30 tyrants his biggest battle was the Battle of Unichia which the history machine gave him about a 20% chance to win oh wow that, and that one managed to just come through and again killed the enemy commander had a tendency to do that I mentioned Mindaris earlier and now also Critias in this battle the loss did in the Battle of uh, Piraeus, really it was, it was kind of a, a theoric victory for Sparta in that one. And they did defeat Thrasilpus, but they weren't able to keep the war going really um, for much longer following that. And in the end, this ba- the aftermath of this battle, Athens regained its independence. I think if we are mentioning Thrasilpus, we do need to mention the Battle of Cesicus. And this is a stunning Athenian victory, where what happens is, you remember that really fancy Spartan fleet that was now bought with some recent Persian gold. He decides to lure them out of the bay with a very small contingency force of like, oh no, we're here, we better run away. And while the Spartans chase them, he surrounds them from behind, cutting off the port with a much larger Athenian fleet from the left and the right. He lures them out with a decoy and then he entirely envelops them. And by doing this, it wins this fantastic battle that the Athenians really regain their dominance in naval power. And the Spartans are like, okay, we did not expect this. We're way too far out from land. There are many squadrons behind us. We're lured out. We don't really know where to go. We're pretty much surrounded and uh, we're in a really, really bad situation here. And he is the guy who was able to execute that. So we've got to give him a lot of credit for this. He has a lot of battles. He has a lot of wins. and he, But he does, if we look at it on the grand scale, he ends an oligarchy, he introduces democracy, and he re-establishes Athens. At this point, Athens could just be some small vassal state that is forever under the thumb of Sparta. And this is the guy who brings them out of it. As you know, mentioned earlier with Mindaris, the one in which he was killed. This one, again, History Machine holds it up. Uh, it, it holds up to its reputation. Yes. Uh, Athens dealt out about 60% more casualties than expected. Um, it was roughly a 50... It should have been a roughly a 50-50 battle, so again, good going on Athens to win it. And, yeah, Commander Kill with Mindaris gone as well uh, holds up. So this one definitely mm-hmm. big, big win for Athens. This helps secure as... Mm-hmm. A force to be reckoned with, basically, on the Athenian side. So I think, with all of that mentioned, I need to give an honorary mention to another Greek commander, historian, by the name of Xenophon. Now, I think I have to mention him because because he is a historian. He is very responsible for actually passing down a lot of these battles and a lot of information to us. And he was also a general and a commander and a fighter. And Xenophon is famous for an expedition where, you might find this hard to believe, but Greek mercenaries are hired 
by Persians to fight in a Persian civil war. Because the Greeks developed this great reputation after fighting the Persians. They're like, these are guys are fantastic infantrymen. We can only use some more. So 10,000 Greek mercenaries under the command of several commanders, one of them Xenophon, are going to go out and fight in this civil war. So they decide to go and fight underneath Cyrus, one of the heads of the Persian civil war. Now, the Greeks, unfortunately, this 10,000, which is like a collage of Greek city-state hoplites. There is just a mix and match of loads of different Greek hoplites. So really, when it comes to money, they will put aside their differences and kind of say, we'll fight on this side here as some pretty hired mercenaries. We'll do the job, we'll, we'll get our thing done. But they unfortunately find themselves on the wrong side of a civil war. Now, before this battle, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but Xenophon gives a speech to his troops and they kind of know they're on the losing side. And he explains to them, if we go into this right now, trying to draw or trying to like get out of here with our lives intact, I guarantee you every one of us is going to die. But if we go in here right now and we try and fight as hard as we can and we fight to win, that is the only chance, the only chance we have of getting out of here alive. And they do go into that battle and they do fight and they do come out relatively unscathed. And after this, they march across modern-day Turkey, racing to the sea to try and get home. And the whole time, they're harassed, effectively, by the winning Persian side trying to, trying to hunt them down. And that is the Battle of Spartalos. So I suppose Sparta are depleted of men. Athens was just recently beaten by Sparta. The Peloponnesian War, there really were no winners for this. Sparta did technically win but it left themselves in a much worse position in terms of manpower. Yeah, at the start of this, you had Sparta and Athens, basically, like, world is their oyster, the main foe is vanquished, they're free to expand out and build up money, but their own petty squabbles just mm -hmm. meant they finished, like, a shell of their former selves. Yeah, and I suppose the next big city-state, the one that we've kind of mentioned in passing every now and then, Thebes, they come really to the forefront right now. And what's important to note about Thebes is, historically, there's three city-states that really have good hoplites. They're, and they interchange them like who has the best at what particular times. But it is Athens, Sparta, and Thebes. And all three of them will have a little bit of like wars in between each other all the time. But Thebes would kind of really come out the short end of the stick most of the time. But this, right after the Peloponnesian War, is when they come in to their own. And they come in under, effectively, what I have to say is an absolute genius, Epaminondas. Now, Epaminondas is the guy who brings Thebes to the front. And what he does is he makes a couple of innovative changes to the army and to how the army works. And he does this and implements it and really gives everybody else a hard time. The first change he decides to do is those eight-foot spears, he decides time to lengthen them. We're going to get them up to 14 foot, maybe 16 foot. We're going to have a huge, much longer spears because in hoplite warfare, those tight, rigid formations with the heavy armor and the shields, if you happen to have longer spears, then you would draw blood first. You could actually hit into the enemies before they could stab into you. So that was the first change he made. The second one was he decided, I'm going to change the layout of this army. I'm not going to have this nice, strong line throughout the whole army and we have our best troops on one particular side and the opponent 
is not quite a mirror, but they're a copy of you, so they have their best troops on the other side. But he comes up with a very interesting strategy. What I'm going to do is I'm going to deploy my troops in like a checkerboard formation. So I want you to understand that it's like how a bishop moves on a chessboard. It's we're going to have a square and a square directly diagonal behind it and a square directly diagonal behind that and that and that. And this is really interesting tactically because what it does is he puts his absolute best troops where they're no longer eight men deep. This could be a 60 man deep formation. This is going to be a sledgehammer about to smash in to the best troops on the opposite side. And these guys are known as the sacred band. So when people think or they think of the rumors of like the homosexual warriors, some of these guys in the sacred band were. And that was supposed to be a whole thing of like, well, you know, you'll fight well for your friends. But imagine how well you'll fight for your, you know for your significant other here like this is going to be like, you're definitely you're not going to run away from them like that's not going to happen so effectively we have a super elite gay fighting force on the tip of this sledgehammer and they're ready to go <laughs> and uh and he decides that this strategy with the checkerboard formation going in the diagonal he'll have the best troops right in the front and do you remember that right hand side call that like the right hand side of the formation that's open and just terrible if you attack it in the phalanx. Well, by deploying these troops in this way, you would look at it and say, listen, their right-hand side is open. These one, these long diagonal troops, the very tip of this spear that's smashing into us and giving us a really hard time, their side is open. We need to engage them. But what he would do then is, when you engage them on the side, suddenly, the guys in that diagonal formation behind them would approach forward and they would be smashing into your flank instead. And then you go, oh no, how do we fix this problem? Well, we got to put our guys forward and smash into their flank. And then suddenly you find your flank smashed. And then we got to put our guys into that flank and your flank is smashed again. And it follows that whole diagonal line down the army. Just constantly luring them in. And then countering. Like this is a military revolution. This, and it's very often referred to as oblique movement when it's used for like military formations and different deployments. And he goes down as an absolute genius for this. Now, you remember, the absolute best force are right at the front. So when they finally finish engaging and smashing in to the best troops on the other side of the field, they wheel around. And now we're going to have a whole envelopment pulling the whole way back through. And we're going to smash through with our best troops. And in order to do this, by having the 60-man deep formation, he thins some of the others, the other ones that won't engage the enemy just yet. And this is a massive revolution. And what's particularly important about this guy, Epimenendas, is he does this to the Spartans. And he takes out the absolute cream of the Spartan crop. And how he describes it at the time is he says, I'm cutting off the head of the serpent. We're going straight for them. We are going to smash into this like royal guard, these absolute great troops. We're going to engage them directly with our super troops. And we are going to smash around and just wreck their day. Sparta will never recover from this. That is something that a lot of people stress. Sparta will never, ever recover from this. And this particular battle is the Battle of Lucretia. And um, I would like to highlight this point. History machine numbers on this battle. Um, it's, it's funny. A lot of times the history machine, it's interesting. Like, oh, where does this differ? Again, uh, this episode, another example where it holds up the reputation this has um it gave epimenendas like a 25 percent chance to win wow and instead yeah he, he won <laughs> he did 20 percent more casualties than expected took 
Um, close to 15% fewer mm-hmm. as well on his own end, uh, casualties than expected. And, wow. you know, killed the enemy general who was also the mm-hmm. Spartan king. So uh, this one, yes. suddenly Sparta was no longer <laughs> the dominant power. Finally, Thebes was the main power after all this time. But mm. it did not last yeah. very long because less than 10 years later, no. you had the Battle of Mantine, which... Epimenidas dies in this battle. Now, this is a guy who is who is definitely a genius. And unfortunately, because he is like a Bismarck of the situation... He's such an important person in this state, in this society. His absence is detrimental. And in this battle, Thebes do win, but he dies in the process. And on his deathbed, he effectively says to the Thebans, that is it, consolidate, do not fight anymore. It's over. I am the guy who is responsible for why we're so good. Don't try it. Don't engage. Don't expand. Consolidate everything I have done. This is what absolutely needs to be done. It is far too important. Yeah, so I suppose that's the end of Epimendas, but again, History Machine treats him very well. Uh, Both this episode and the previous one, he is held up as the joint best general in terms of wins over expectation um, at 0.82. So on average, he had a 20% chance to win and he won every time. He dealt out about a quarter more casualties than you would expect, he, while himself taking fewer casualties mm. than expected, uh, about 5% fewer uh, rounding. Mm-hmm. Dealt out 0.5 uh, enemy commander kills over expectation, mm-hmm. so like a coin flip chance he would kill your commander in the process. But the one failing uh, wow. commander that suffered on his own side was also 0.5 because he died in the second battle we had in the database for him. So, oh, yeah, this was yeah. one that could have been a really, really big deal had he not died there. But, um, yeah, I think the final part to mention, once we wrap up pretty much on some of the Greek ideas here, and we'll, we'll go a little bit further into some of the figures, but there is one person whose name we can very easily pronounce, who's pretty much a hostage of Epimonidas at this time. And we'll return home with all of these notions and ideas of how warfare should work and how you need to build an army and how you should lay out infantry. And that is Philip. Philip II of Macedonia, who is Alexander the Great's father. And it is from Epimonidas that this guy has pretty much learned everything I need to know about infantry warfare before I go back up north where we have some savage cavalry. Yeah, so in summary, we yeah. started this episode, uh, Athens of Sparta, expanding into what you expect to be great empires. The end of this episode, all Greek city-states shattered, no one is ready to defend themselves, and they've just let the guy who would, you know, who whose child would be Alexander the Great, <laughs> he just got away. And he has all these new ideas about how to fight. <laughs> pretty much how to arrange an army how to work it out how to how to figure it and he is heavily cultured and ready to go in a series of wars that's very complex has tons of sides tons of little things we have a very clear narrative cliffhanger set up at the end of this one i have to say like it's it's clear that there's 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 a shadow in the distance yeah. that that's going to come and yeah very and much so. the joint this this is what it is pretty much yeah going to go and he is going to destroy pretty much greece it's well not destroy it he's going to go and he's going to quote unquote unite Greece under a banner and go and take on Persia but um, 
that's pretty much uh, the story we want to talk about. So I suppose let's go through our top five generals that we have mentioned in this podcast and roll them out. So coming in at number five. Number five, we're leaving out Mindaris. We mentioned six main generals in this, and he did he did not he did not make the cut. Um, with minus 0.7 wins over expectation. Doesn't even count. Interesting one in position number five, though. Lysander. Had he finished up after two after his first couple of battles, and if he hadn't kept on going till his loss, he would have been ranked second. As it stands, that wow. loss. He, he should have won it. Uh, the History Machine really thinks he should have won it. It killed his overall score. He finishes with minus 0.02 wins over expectation. So, like, he mm. finishes looking average, essentially, because of that average, bad loss. Average, yeah. Where he was great, yeah. he finishes looking average. However, even after despite all that, the he has very he high uh, casualties dealt out over expectation. Yeah. And he will kill your general if you're yeah. not careful. Like, he's very strong uh, <laughs> 0.3 enemy general very kills strong. over expectation. Yeah. His his regicide <laughs> number and his uh, and his politicide mm. number is through the roof. But importantly, <laughs> and importantly as well, right. doesn't take yep. much casualties, which the other Spartan uh, okay. admirals had not succeeded in doing. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, excellent. So let's see. Coming in then at number, at number four. four, similar situation. Good general who maybe just kept going a bit too long and let their score get damaged was Simon, who was mostly okay. involved in the Delian Wars, helped prevent a big counteroffensive from the Persians, and basically like made sure that they would not be a threat for the next hundred years um, mm-hmm. with the Battle of Eurymedon. But his final wins over expectation, only 0.06, just because he, he just okay. had those losses down the road. Yeah, they just seem to add up. It, it, it is a definitely a thing our history machine factors in. If you get a good streak in, you're showing yourself as a pretty competent commander. And if you kind of have a few wins and you lose a battle that you were meant to win, it will really heavily affect your score. Because, you know what? You shouldn't have lost it. It was yours to win. So, with that in mind, coming in at number three. At number three, we have Cleon. So Cleon, yeah, as we said, he was the highly mediocre general. Point. Zero seven wins over expectation. Nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, dealt out dealt out a good number of casualties, but uh, he may have killed an enemy commander in his final battle. But he died in the process too. You know, I suppose the Athenians didn't really mourn him a huge amount afterwards. They they didn't like him that much, and nah. they were kind of happy to have a break from war uh, following his death. Fair enough. Well, I suppose the history machine does look very favorable on him. That it considers his battles would have been difficult to win, and he did perform pretty much better than other people could have yeah. in that situation which is why he's scoring particularly well but with that in mind he's a guy that's defined mm. very much by his death the most important thing this guy ever yeah. does is die so i think we need to remember him as somebody who uh kind of comes out not necessarily as bad as he should have come out yeah he was he was definitely like hated by athens he was he was only average he wasn't terrible but mm. i think he was just in the in the position where like they needed someone to scapegoat to really i'd say like this was, you know, stupid and let's not go back to this yeah. for a while. All right. So with that in mind and all aside, our number two. Number two and the general with the most battles in our database for the Greeks. Uh, there's a... Ah, still can't pronounce it. There's Sibylus. There's Sibylus. Point three one wins over expectation. Very solid number. And like yeah. after six battles, one of which was a loss, maintaining... A reasonably high value like that is very impressive. The man who brings back democracy. You can say what you want about the Athenians, say what you want about the Spartans, say about what they did when they founded it, say what you want about Pericles, 
say what you want about other people. But if this guy didn't win, there's probably a good chance that democratic experiment would have just been yeah. an experiment and a, a, an interesting footnote in history. So if you look at your government system, you look at some of the superpowers in the world today, they are democracies. And this is the guy, Thrasyllabus, who is responsible for it. I think it's important as well from the history of machine point of view, like six battles. There are a lot of generals who have very high scores, but they only have a couple of battles. And it's easy to kind of fluke your way into that. True. He really had enough time to revert to the mean. And to still come out with a high score is far more impressive, really, I think, getting yeah. the 0.31, despite having a loss after mm-hmm. six battles. And even the loss that yeah. he had, it did enough damage in the process that the Spartans weren't able to keep going afterwards. And Athens regained its independence. Oh, okay. So excellent. Definitely, yeah. definitely a, a big, strong name. So that means our Olympic gold for this episode is Epaminondas, the man who comes trailblazing in here with a fantastic score of 0.82 wins over expectation. So basically, what would be a twenty percent chance for other people? That's fifty-fifty for him. You know, he's fantastic. <laughs> he's he's happy to take these odds. He's the guy now who'll come up with like new military formations, new military like maneuvering, uh, battlefield tactics. He's the tutor of Philip II. He's the guy who's going to say, this is how you win a war. This is how you play with infantry. This is how you make like an elite force to smash on the flanks. This is how you deploy troops. This is why you should use longer spears. He is responsible for why Thebes comes out of the backwater after the Peloponnesian War, to be the dominant force. And I'm actually, I'm not surprised, and I'm actually quite impressed by the history machine, that it does recognize this person who is incredibly historically significant. The man who is pretty much the tutor or the innovator for the up-and-coming Macedonian ancient army that will be under Alexander, the guy who inspires a lot of the troops. He has come out on top here as something to behold and i think really we have a big what if in him in terms of if he hadn't died uh Mm -hmm. when he did if he he was able to keep on going but uh yeah definitely Mm -hmm. even even in death he had a huge legacy as a result of the people that he uh, involved himself with inspires and trains and innovates and pretty much gives ideas and technical skills too now i think what's important to note about him is some of his tactics will be used like as late as the Napoleonic era. To look at him and say, yeah, okay, this is actually a great way to deploy troops. This, is, this whole oblique formation and oblique movement is actually excellent. This is fantastic. This is how we win our battles. And like to think that he will be somebody that pretty much the renaissance of ideas will come back to study. The fact that, yeah, as you said, like the influence lasting over 2,000 years, you know, that says it all, really. That says it all, yeah. So, with that in mind, I think we're going to wrap up this episode and we're going to move on to another subject that has pretty much the opposite of the Greeks right now. Very big names, very memorable battles, very significant people, center stage uh, events. Well, that's not really counter to the Greeks, but we are going to move on to the Punic Wars, where names like Hannibal, Scipio, do it out for the big battles. Not going to lie, the, the research for the Greek episodes was insanely tough because there are so many names who disappear really quickly, so many factions, so many just differing interests. It's very complex. This time we have a nice, simple, there are two big countries, winner takes all, winner becomes the superpower, loser gets trampled into the dust. Ah, correction, loser gets uh, their soil salted so nothing will ever grow there again. (laughs) Winner gets to be a very bad winner. (laughs) 
So yeah, it's it's a it's a simpler narrative, but we we have some big big names to talk about in the next one. Big names, big battles, big ideas, phenomenal scores. So I think this is going to be this is the ancient world's equivalent of World War Two. This is the Punic Wars. So thanks. Thanks very much for all of that. Thanks very much for listening. And if you want to reach out to us, you can find us on our website, historymachinepodcast.com, or you can email us at historymachinepodcast at gmail.com. So I've been Niall. And I've been Cole. And we'll see you again soon. (laughs) 